Hello, Kalle, and welcome to the Roll-On, Roll-Off pod, which is uh, uh, a new dimension of the Facebook group with the same name, which Mitchell and I started last year. Um, so, could you please introduce yourself and, and uh, tell us a little bit what started your interest in, in uh, Roro and ferries and so on? All right. Uh, thank you for being the first guest, of course. Um, so, I'm Eid, as you probably already know. I'm probably best known as a maritime historian and, and journalist, so I've written four books and quite a lot of articles for, for different publications in, in both English and Finnish. And uh, as for what started my interest in ferries and shipping, that's always one of those questions where you're a bit like, um, <laughs> broad question, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think yes. Obviously, being Finnish, when I was a kid, we went quite often on ferry cruises to either to Stockholm or to Tallinn. And okay, so, so you were you you were you were born and and, and raised in Helsinki. In, yeah. In yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. So so it was kind of no one in my family was you know, an enthusiast of any kind, but we would go several times a year, yeah, on either Viking or Cilia ferries, or sometimes Tallink, but this was, you know, the 90s, Tallink were a bit shabby at the time, maybe. But yeah, it just then somehow came from there that it was uh, made an impression on my young and fragile mind. Yeah, yeah. It sounds, uh, to be honest, very similar to my own upbringing. I didn't have any any of my parents working in the industry, but I also grew up in a port where there were many ferries and, and ships. You mentioned your books here, and, and uh, we would like to dedicate a part of this interview uh, to your books, really. So, as I believe, there are four of them, uh, slightly yes. different topics, but all uh, related to the marine industry. So. Could you tell us a little bit about each title and uh, yeah, what, what's you know what, what was the reason behind uh, each of them? All right, yeah, sure. So we start from the beginning. The first book was Cilia Line from De Sam Seglande to Tallink, which came out in 90, uh, 2014, which actually very originally started uh, when I told my friend Bruce Peter, another maritime historian, that I was interested in writing some kind of a history of the Finland Steamship Company, or, or uh, EFOA, as it's probably more easily you know, referable and also better known under that name in, in Finland. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, that's a good idea, you should write a book, but you know, no one's going to buy that if you if you write something about Zephoa that's you know ancient news and all that. So you should write a history of Cilia Line instead, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that will give an excuse to then write about Zephoa and all kinds of other things. Yeah. So I did <laughs> to to kind of make a long story short. That was and also because one of the reasons why that ended up. So why I ended up going with Bruce's idea was the fact that although there have been quite many books about the history of Cilia Line, more most recently the 50th anniversary book in 2006, which you know around 2012ish 
when I started working on my book that was still fairly new. But uh, frankly, none of them were particularly good. So I thought, you know, I could write a good history of Cilia Line. Yeah. And, uh, and I think I was successful because uh, my friend Marco Stampel, who wrote the uh, uh, fleet history for the official Cilia Line book, once told me that, yeah, the best book about Cilia Line would be my text and his fleet history. So, so that was kind of... That was the first book. That was more along the lines of proving that I can do it. Okay. But and then, did you find the uh, find the the whole publishing and, and, and sales of the book was that successful? Uh, uh, publishing was successful, but you know, it's there's still quite a few copies left at the publisher, to my understanding. So it maybe didn't sell as well as we had hoped for. I think a part of the reason is is the fact that the title doesn't actually make it clear that it's a book in English, because the only words in English are from and to. Okay. So, so I've had people ask, or I've seen people asking the internet that, yeah, this looks like an interesting book, but is it in English? Yeah. So maybe we could have given the title another thought. So where could uh, where could people get this book? Who published the book, by the way? Yeah, uh, Ferry Publications is the publisher. You can get it from their, their web shop or uh, also directly from me, but that's probably only an option if you live in Finland because postage fees from Finland to just about any place else are so expensive that, you know, Ferry Publications will be cheaper. Right. Um, but yeah, that book was got done and and it also it had a short one chapter about the history of Tallink as the current owners of Cilia Line and uh, then I started thinking that okay well actually it's going to be Tallink's 25th anniversary the same year as the Cilia, Cilia book was published and I've already done essentially enough research to write a book on the history of Tallink as well we could you know I could tell ferry publications that I could write a book on the history of Tallink and we could maybe ask Tallink if they would like to actually pay us something for it and Tallink didn't really reply okay. even though we had been in contact about the Cilia book they had you know provided me with some materials for that but mm -hmm. they just didn't reply when we were talking about Tallink book I'm a little bit uh, interested here. How were you able to do uh, a lot of research on the on the uh, shipping company when there was no real response? I mean, uh, when you look at other uh, authors, they they've got full access to the uh, shipping company's archives, and, and uh, mm. uh, ob obviously you didn't in this case. I so. didn't. I didn't in this case. So it's. Mostly, then, it's based on what was written in in magazines and newspapers and uh, and things like this. So it could well be that you know the book would have been very different if I had had full access to the Tallink archives. Yeah, it is what it is. I mean, quite often when there's a, a no unofficial company history, for instance. I think there was recently a Ferry Publications book on on LD lines, which also didn't have access to the company archives. That has been quite heavily criticized, uh, I think, in a lot of the shipping shipping groups for 
you know, not only did they not have access to the archive, but they didn't reach out to people who had been involved uh, uh, in the company, whereas I did get to interview people like uh, Heikki Mattila, who was the interior architect for most of the Tallinn's new build ships and things like this. So I, I did have access to a lot of material, but in a somewhat you know, roundabout way. So this was your second book, and you said yeah. you have written four books. So indeed. Uh, so the next one then was innovation and specialization, the story of shipbuilding in Finland, which I wrote together with Bruce Peter, which came about originally as a as Bruce's idea that we could we could make a book book together, and he wanted to make a book about shipbuilding in Finland. And obviously, that for him had the problem that he doesn't speak Finnish. So, so that in in the end, I would say, and Bruce might disagree, but I would say that it's more my book than Bruce's book, for the simple reason that almost all the source material we ended up using was in Finnish or in some cases Swedish, but either way, in languages that I can I can understand. And he can't, at least not as well as I can. So, yeah, yes, I, that I should uh, maybe flick in that this is uh, the only of your four books that I've written, but I find it an excellent. On the contrary to to uh, the second book, it's obvious that you've had uh, access to a lot of good archive material. So, yeah, absolutely. I could, could definitely and, uh, recommend the book to anyone who's interested in yeah. shipbuilding <laughs> and, and fin oh, Finnish shipbuilding right, yeah. in particular. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I I agree. It's a really really good book, even if I may say so myself. And mm -hmm. the advantage for that one was the fact that the archives of a lot of Finnish companies are not at the companies themselves, but you know the archives of both Vartsila and uh, Valmet, the two of the biggest Finnish shipbuilders, those are actually, Valmet, uh, no, both of them are at the central business archives, which is open to everyone. Mm -hmm. So there was no, or there would have been no need for me to get to these, go to these companies, Especially as Vertil and Valmet both still exist, but they have nothing to do with shipbuilding these days. So I didn't need to try to uh, go to Vertil headquarters and and have a look at their archives with someone looking over my shoulder all the time. But I could just go to the central business archives and and read a lot of the stuff there. And actually, now that you know my memory is being picked, uh, a lot of the old Celia Line archives are at the in Turku. At the Schöhistoriska Institute at the Obu Academy, which is also open to anyone, so some stuff of or in the Cilia book is from there, but there's you know a lot of the Cilia archives are still still with Cilia themselves. Meyer Turku were also very accommodating when I asked them that you know could I come and look at your archives and especially your photo archives. So I spent one week in their photo archives at the shipyard, just scanning photos for use use in the book. And there's quite a few in there that have never been in print before because they were taken by the shipyard photographers, but then either not used at all or just used in some old Vatsila brochure from whenever and, and not seen since. And, uh, also for that book, then, uh, 
at the time, this was because the book was done when Rauma Shipyard, as a shipyard of SDX Europe, had closed down and their archives had been given to the Rauma Maritime Museum. So that again was then a simple matter of calling up Rauma Maritime Museum and asking, or actually sending them an email, but still asking them, you know, if you have this stuff, can I come to Rauma and look at them? And they not only arranged that, but also uh, Johan Snellman, who had been working at the uh, design and marketing department of the Rauma Shipyard for many, many years. He actually then came to me, came to be my personal guide. Uh, maybe we should mention here to to listeners that uh, the book covers more or less the entire Finnish shipbuilding history, and and it uh, deals with the different yards, Helsinki and Turku and Rauma, uh, and 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 different types of ships, including mm. Roro ships. But it is very. A detailed and and uh, very interesting, both from a I think from a technical point of view, but also of course from a historical point of view. Um, so yes, uh, definitely would like to recommend that. Uh, is that book still available from from publishers? That book is still available at it should be available in bookstores. Um, yeah. If you're I from Finland. Yeah, I think I got my copy from uh, the book depository, which is uh, quite a convenient service for. I think they send uh, books globally, and and they're quite low on shipping costs. So mm. uh, you might have to wait for a while to get your book, but uh, eventually uh, it arrives, and like I said, at a low cost. Mm. Yes, book depository is is recommended, and if if you live in Finland, uh, I'm about to get. Uh, several copies of the book for sale so or to sell rather so you know if you if you want in a copy of innovation and specialization and live in Finland do send me a message on 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 Facebook and I will deliver <laughs> yeah that's good um, we would like you to um, yeah if you could tell us something about the last book I will uh, then hand over to to Mitchell for for a totally different question so yeah so so the latest book uh, is the North Sea Bridge ferry connections between Scandinavia and Britain uh, 1822 2014 so that one came about in a, in a slightly different way from the others in that back in 2014 when uh, DFDS closed down the last passenger ferry connection to, from Scandinavia to Britain so the Esbjerg Harwich line I was a part of the team that made the Finnish shipping magazine uh, Ulkomatala and uh, we had the idea that, you know, since this traffic is now ending for good, we could have an article series about its history in, in addition to doing a more of a news piece about the last Scandinavia to Britain link uh, ceasing to exist. And, uh, yeah, I have a master's degree in history, so I was chosen as the, as the person to write this article series. And originally it was going to be four parts, but then it grew into seven parts because there was just so much to um, write about. And uh, 
So it was published in 2015, uh, 2015 to 2016 because the magazine came out six times a year and there were seven parts, so it literally couldn't be published within just one year. And uh, then a few years later when we were finishing doing innovation and specialization, I thought that, yeah, I could do another book. But it would be nice to do a book that didn't require quite so much research to get done. Finnish language article series on, on Scandinavia to Britain shipping had already been in total something like 70 pages. So it was kind of an easy way to approach a book that I would simply translate this article series into English. But then when I started working on it, I was like, yeah, well, I actually had a lot of material that I didn't put, in, put into the article series because it would have been even longer and, and that would maybe not have been so good. So I ended up doing quite a lot of additional research research for, for the final English book and, and it's... The, apparently, <laughs> my notes are telling me that in the end the book was 160 pages instead of the 70 of the Finnish version that was kind of the progenitor of the final book. But yes, so that literally covers, or hopefully, hopefully, in, in if I didn't miss anything, it covers every passenger liner connection ever to have existed between uh, not only Scandinavia and Britain, but also from Finland to Iceland, Finland and Iceland to Britain. Uh, and, and this book, is, is it out now? Has it been published? It is, yeah. It came out actually uh, already in late 2019, um, again by Ferry Publications, so you can buy it again from the Ferry Publications website or, or directly from me. All right, so uh, it's very interesting to hear uh, about your books. Uh, sounds like you, you've put a lot of effort into this. Uh, now, uh, Mitchell has uh, a different question for you here, so I'll, I'll let him uh, go on mm -hmm. with that one and, and just be listening. Yeah, yeah so some really good books there, uh, Calais. And uh, yeah, obviously I have three of them, and um, yeah, I must add that uh, other one to the collection. So, um, in particular, um, obviously you have an interest in all the ferries and cruise ships and stuff like that. But we've noticed, yeah, in the groups and uh, <laughs> and in your books that you have a particular interest in uh, uh, Soviet ferries, and uh, it's it's something perhaps uh, not very well known to myself. Only what what I've read through your take on it. Uh, why? What is it that you find interesting about them in particular? Mm. So my my interest in in the Soviet Union and the former former East Bloc in general goes goes beyond just the uh, shipping stuff. Yeah, I was born in 1983, so when I was a kid, the Soviet Union was a really big thing, especially living in Finland. We were right next to it, so it was sort of, it was in the news a lot, and it was being spoken about a lot, and then suddenly it just wasn't anymore, and we had to, you know, we when we were had geography class in school, the teacher would be like, yeah, we still have these old maps with the Soviet Union, but obviously now it's Russia and Belarus and Ukraine and all these countries. 
countries that became independent. So it's more this general fascination with the fact that something that's so different from the world as it is today existed, existed in my lifetime and then, well, just in general overlaps with an interest in shipping but also the fact, as, as you said, that there's actually very little information available in, in English or indeed in Finnish or Swedish or any other language that I would kind of claim to speak about those things and often if you look at two different sources they have sometimes have completely conflicting information for for the same ship or the same service which I ran into with the latest book where I tried to when I tried to find that when exactly the, the Soviets passenger service, passenger service from what was then Leningrad to London via ports in Finland, Sweden and, and uh, Denmark, when did that actually stop running? And I could find a lot of answers but they weren't the same answers. Mm -hmm. so, so there would be one, one book that would say that it ended in 1977 another book that said that it ended, ended in 1986 and then uh, one of my friend had an, had a contact in, in Russia and they asked them and the Russian guy that said that no actually it ended in 1990. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a mystery that in, in, intrigues me. So you um, never got a, a definite answer? I got a definite answer and of course it happened after the book came out. Because this is what happens so often when you're writing a book, you're contacting people and asking them, that, you know, do you have information about this and this thing, and and could you proofread my book for me? And uh, sometimes people do proofread. Sometimes they say that they can do it, but when you send them the manuscript, they never get back to you. And then what happens is once the book is out, a lot of people will will come out of the out of the out of the woodworks and say that, yeah, yeah, I actually, I knew this thing. And that's precisely what happened yeah. in this case. Someone had, a, had an old, old uh, timetable which demonstrated that, yes, the real year that it ended was 1977. But the book says that it was 1977 or 1986 or 1990. I couldn't find this out. Now I know. But, you know, if there's a chance of a second edition, then... I will correct the intervention. Mm. Yeah, very good. Yeah, well, it's very interesting. And also, there was um, the particular um, series of sisters at the Dmitri um, Shostakovich. Shostakovich. Okay. <laughs> after, after the famous Soviet composer. Yeah. Right. So we've seen these uh, ferries um, around the world. Um, you know, over the years, have been very, very successful. It were originally constructed for uh, Soviet customers. Mm. Um, why do you think they were so successful? That's a really good question. Uh, to which I don't really have a kind of a definitive answer because they were quite small for their era, and uh, they originally had a problematic bow construction. All except one had their bow or they were built in two series and all except one of the original, I think there were five sisters, all except one of those had their bows rebuilt 
and then additional sisters were built later in the mid-1980s and those were built with a slightly different bow from the start but uh, they they clearly were very versatile ships and actually quite well built uh, with uh, with an ice class all of them so they were good for expedition cruising in addition to to ferry service ferry, yeah. and actually I think the only two that now exists which are let's see the ocean diamond and the no, it's not Ocean Diamond, it's something else. Now I'm confusing ships. Anyway, the former Christina Katarina and uh, the former SC Atlantic. So probably Ocean Atlantic and I think the former Christina Katarina is Ocean Endeavour. But anyway, both of them are now expedition cruise ships. So clearly they good they are good ships for that and uh, one of my my contacts in the cruise business was also explaining that a part of why they're so good cruise ships is the fact that they were originally ferries which sounds strange but they had a side gate for loading cardiac in addition to having most of them having an, an aft gate so in the ships that are now cruise ships they kept the side gate and the small for Macardic area in the app that they can use for store, stores when they you know need to bring stuff on board the ship so they're actually easier to kind of it's easier to load and unload all these things that you need for a long cruise like food mm -hmm. they're better in that respect because of the ferry loading arrangements than actual purpose-built cruise ships which is mm -hmm. fascinating uh, but it's also one thing that I've always found funny about those ships is that uh, uh, this is again something that's also discussed in the Finnish shipbuilding book that uh, in 19, I think 77 or 76, the Polish Ocean Lines ordered a railroad cargo ferry from uh, from uh, Raumarepola in in Finland, uh, named the and I'm now probably pronouncing this wrong, Ironroklav or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time it was ordered, uh, it was said in the Finnish press that, you know, the Poles can't build ferries themselves. They can build, build all kinds of other ships, but not ferries. And then a few years later you get the Dimitri, Dimitri Shostakovich-class ferries, and of course then Poland would also become the one country that took up a Roro cargo ship construction in Finland because they essentially copied the Finnish design and sold it to Finnish shipping companies. Um, maybe I should uh, move on hmm? here uh, with another question and then we can try to mix the topics here. Um, Soviet customers and, and, um, and Finnish shipbuilding and uh, yeah we look back towards the 70s and 80s the Wärtsile uh, Turku Yard, the new one uh, in, in, in Parino, was mm -hmm. uh, completed in, yeah, you could say, uh, you could build hulls in, in the beginning of uh, the 80s or even the, the late 70s, and then mm -hmm. years later on it was also, they also moved the, the outfitting. But uh, to me, as someone who's very interested in shipbuilding, um, it was obvious that the Finnish building of shipbuilding at that time was 
quite dependent on the Soviet orders, which eventually mm. stopped coming in, in, in when, when the whole uh, Iron Curtain fell and, and uh, the Soviet collapsed in 1991. So suppose you're an expert on that <laughs> topic, so could you... Mm. So do you want a whole story about how Finland came to build so many ships for the Soviets, or just a slightly simpler story, uh, story of why it that, that, that is uh, related to the war debts, uh, which probably ended in... Uh, uh, Finland had already paid that debt uh, in 1959 or something like that. So, mm. so I'm mainly interested in, uh, really, is, is it correct, how important was the Soviet orders for Finland, for the modern Finnish shipbuilding in, in those days, uh, let's say the 70s and 80s? It was crucial. It was the Finnish... Soviet Union was the largest individual customer for Finnish shipyards by a large margin. More than half of all ships built in Finland went to the Soviet Union. It was less important for Wärtsilä because they were building cruise ships and, and high-quality ferries that you know went not only to Finnish customers but also also in other countries. But the other Finnish shipbuilders some of them would build ships almost exclusively to the Soviet Union. It would be relatively rare for them to have a customer that wasn't either Finnish or Soviet. So it was absolutely, it was, it was this, you know, just to go back a little bit, uh, it was, you know, apart from the Wärtsilä shipyards in Turku and Helsinki, pretty much all the other major Finnish shipyards had been established or entered ship entered shipbuilding as in building new ships rather than being repair yards that happened because of the war reparation effort and then once the war reparations were paid in 1952 they needed to get customers from somewhere so they pretty much continued building the exact same thing to the soviet union as they had before but you know now well, they did get paid to do them all the time because the Finnish state, Finnish state, paid for the war reparations to the to the builders. But now it was kind of building more of the same stuff from a commercial basis. And then over the years, the other shipyards, then Varzila, also started building more more complex ships because the, the war reparations reparation ships and those that came immediately after were things like sailing vessels or barges but then they moved on to general cargo ships and later on roro cargo ships and research vessels and accommodation ships and things like this but then really already when Gorbachev came, came to power in the in the 1980s things started getting more difficult because Gorbachev decided that the Soviet shipping companies had to actually be able to afford to pay for their ships themselves. Whereas in the past it had been kind of the state central central maritime ministry that had actually paid for the ships and therefore the individual Soviet shipping companies could buy ships that their their sort of income couldn't afford. But Gorbachev decided that no, this will no longer fly. And then a related problem 
were for the Finnish shipbuilders, not, not really to the Soviet Union, was the fact that Gorbachev also wanted to rebalance the trade system between Finland and the Soviet Union because the reason why this whole whole shipbuilding thing worked so well for the Finnish shipyards was the fact that it, uh, Finland and the Soviet Union operated a bilateral clearing trade agreement. And what this meant was that when a Finnish shipyard built a ship for the Soviet Union, they were actually paid for, or they got their money from the Bank of Finland, the National Bank of Finland. And the National Bank of Finland just marked down that, okay, the Soviet Union owes us this and this much, much money for this, for this ship. And then the idea was that the Soviet Union would then export stuff to Finland to balance it out. The problem was that apart from things like crude oil, which isn't that valuable, no one in Finland actually wanted to buy anything that had been built in the Soviet Union. So, so the trading account was constantly imbalanced, imbalanced so that the Soviet Union owed a crap load of money to Finland. And uh, Gorbachev decided that, okay, well, Friends, if you want us to buy more stuff from you, you have to buy more stuff from us. So already in the late 80s, the Soviet trade wasn't as important as it had been before because the Soviet just couldn't, because of these changes in how you know their, their party had decided that things run. They just couldn't keep on ordering as many and as expensive ships as they had done before, which was a big challenge to just about every Finnish shipbuilder except Vartsila, for whom it was only a challenge, not a big challenge. And this is why even before the Soviet Union fell, you first had Vartsila and Valmet merging their shipbuilding operations into Vartsila Marine, and then a few years later, Raumarepola and Holming merged to find uh, merged into Raumayards, which then later became no merged into Finyards. Sorry, Raumayards was the Raumarepola shipbuilding division's name for a few years in the late eighties. But yeah, so we went from having four major shipbuilding companies to having just two in the late eighties already before the Soviet Union fell. And then it was at the time it was still presumed that we would get some custom some some new building contracts from the Soviet Union. So just before it fell, the Soviet Union ordered a new new icebreaker from from what was then already Massa Yards, but it was well I was almost about to say that it was never built. It kind of was uh the SFC Sakhalin, or is it Fesco Sakhalin? I don't remember which name it was built under. It now operates under a different name than it was built under. But anyway, that one which was built somewhere around 2006 was technically the same ship that had been ordered from Masayards in 1990. And it had just sort of been in a development limbo for for de over, over a decade. But yeah, that's sort of a very long answer to the question of uh, of importance of the Soviet Union to finish shipbuilding. It was yeah, it was absolutely crucial, 
And then if you look at what happened in the 90s, after the Soviet Union fell to the Finnish shipyards, shipyards kept where can't really say, well, they were closed down in the sense that Finnyards had two shipyards in Rauma when it was established, and then one of those was closed down in the 90s. But, you know, the whole development of Finnish shipbuilding from 1991 until today is kind of trying to cope with the fact that the largest customer disappeared and the building capacity is excessive to the market without the Soviet Union. Do you think it would be uh, fair to say that those big facilities such as uh, the Verkes and the Parno yard and also the Valmet yard, which the, in, in uh, is it Vursari? In, in, in mm, Vursari, Helsinki, yes. Yeah, outside Helsinki uh, at the time, a state-of-the-art facility, that those yards were built simply because you had access to Russian and Soviet orders. So uh, it was... Yeah. It was predicted that, that would, those orders would keep on flowing and that that would keep those yards busy. Mm, that was, yeah, that was pretty much the idea on which they were built that. Uh, the Soviet Union obviously operated on the basis of the five-year plans that were, you know, start, so always, always started in the exact ten figures, so 1980 to 1985 and then 86 to no, it can't be like that. Anyway, but yeah, five-year plans and what was already notable in the 80s in Finnish shipbuilding was that in the beginning of the five-year plan there would be a flood of orders to Finnish shipyards and then towards the end the sort of quota had been used up and the shipbuilding shipyards were struggling until the beginning of the next five-year plan when there again would be a flood of orders. So both in the late uh, late 70s, there was a shipbuilding crisis in Finland because we there were no new Soviet orders. Then in 1984, there was a shipbuilding crisis in Finland because there were no new Soviet orders. Then in 1989, there was a shipbuilding crisis in Finland because there were no new Soviet orders. And of course, then the next five-year plan didn't really get very far anyway. It's, it's, but. It's, it's interesting now this topic that you're touching because what I've seen or read about is that towards the uh, the late 70s the, the Bank of Finland and maybe other Finnish banks uh, had a much more protectionist role than, than, than before meaning that mm. ship, ship owners who wanted to order ships in foreign countries were kind of prevented to do so in favor of building a Finnish yards. Uh, yep. And I guess they did this simply to compensate to a certain extent for those uh, missing Soviet orders that didn't happen when expected. So. Yeah, precisely. That's um, up until the late 80s, the Bank of Finland. So Bank of Finland is the National Bank of Finland, which, you know, it's not a commercial bank, but the bank mm -hmm. that controls the national treasury. Uh, the Bank of Finland had to approve every single transfer of Finnish money to abroad. So if you wanted to buy anything from outside of Finland, you had to get approval from the Bank of Finland. It didn't use its powers, you know, sort of constantly. Your Finnish, ship, uh, Finnish shipping companies were easily able to order ships from places like West Germany 
in the uh, or Sweden for that matter in 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 the early 70s and before that because Finnish shipbuilding capacity had been was so well utilized but then as you say uh, there was a shipbuilding crisis in Finland and uh, the Bank of Finland was that okay well we wish to protect Finnish employment at the shipyards that you know Viking line you want to other ships from Japan well you can't we aren't going to give you permission you're going to order from Partila even though it's going to be more expensive and that's pretty much what happened so if you look at almost every ship or every passenger ferry built in Finland to Finnish owners between the Turella in 1978 and the, the Wellamo in uh, 1986. Every ship was originally planned to be ordered from some other country, but the Bank of Finland stopped that. In most cases, though not all cases, the Finnish, uh, Finnish state did give uh, shipbuilding subventions that offset most of the price difference, but not all of it. But it's absolutely at that point it was the Bank of Finland that was keeping Finnish shipbuilding alive. And if you look at then what happened later, they were simply postponing the eventual crisis. It's uh, my favorite topic, I would say. Uh, <laughs> shipbuilding, and, and, and I'm always so fascinated that uh, our neighboring country has been uh, been able to to keep shipbuilding alive while it has you know faded away in in, in that more or less old Scandinavian countries, and you have a little bit of small-scale shipbuilding in Norway still, but mm. yeah, cannot still compare with the volumes from the Finnish yard. Uh, there's been quite a lot of water under the bridges since then, but would you like to uh, say something about the current situation and the yards in their current form, and, and what do you predict on, let's say, Five years onwards, what will happen? If you could say a, a few words about the three major yards that you you do have these days. Mm. Of course, I mean the current situation with the global pandemic does make all predictions quite difficult because we simply don't know what will happen, especially to the cruise sector after after the. After the pandemic ends, or more, perhaps more to the point, we don't know if all the cruise companies will will survive until then. And uh, yeah, that's particularly a problem, I think, for Meyer Turku, because they've been so heavily specializing in building very, very big cruise ships. Uh, Turku Yard, even before it was Meyer Turku, was kind of since since the late 90s been been specializing in building some of the largest cruise ships in the world and well will there be a cruise industry as we knew it before the pandemic in in five years time we just just don't know and uh, well shipbuilding generally tends to be about references actually in the sense that you know if you built a ship of a certain type recently then you can and it's made a good ship then you can likely likely get an order for a ship of that type so 
Mayer Turku, at least at some point, were, were advertising on their website that they can also build uh, tankers. And they can, but the last time they built a tanker was in uh, 1996. So it's not really a new reference that they can use and say that, yeah, sure, we can still build these things. And, you know, can tankers actually be built in, in competitive prices in Finland, which, you know, we are a quite expensive country. So Finnish shipyards have been for the, well, pretty much since, again, the fall of the Soviet Union. We have been trying to compete with quality and to a degree seem to have succeeded because most people who actually work on ships that I've been talking about are always saying that Finnish ships are built to very high quality standards not only compared to ships built in, say, China, which is now really heavily expanding in, in ferry building, but also compared to ships built in Italy or France. Uh, there was one anecdote that I was told that if you have a Finnish ship and you have these you know, electric wires and things that run behind the walls in a, in a Finnish built or a German built ship, they run you know, exactly straight from deck to deck, everything in exact, precise order. And then if you have the same thing in, in an Italian built ship, they're just bundled together and you can't actually, if you know one electric wire on one deck is in one location, you go one deck upwards, even though to a passenger it looks the same, like it's a, it's a cabin deck where everything is identical. You can't know where the exact same electric wire actually is behind all the wall paneling. I guess the uh, on-time deliveries are also instrumental here. But uh, mm. if you do order uh, a modern Ropax or a, or a ferry in, in in Finland, you should expect well more or less an an, an on-time delivery. It won't be delayed with several years or something, which yeah. could happen. At which we yeah, level. which we have yeah seen happen recently in a at least in a certain certain case in Scotland. Absolutely true, you know, quality delivery on time. And then one thing that's, you know, very often forgotten when when companies go to go to China or some other place to order something from there, and this is especially I think crucial for ships, because traveling to China is going to take time and money. And then when you take into account all the meetings that have to be done face-to-face -face, and someone has to pay for them and someone has to actually work at the shipyard as the ship owner's representative for the entire duration of the construction or, or even several people it's going to cost a lot more to get those people accommodation in China for the duration of the construction and be you know paying their plane tickets to go come back to Finland on holidays or whatever then it would, if a Finnish shipping company ordered a ship from Turku or Rauma and, you know, the guy or girl who was their representative at the shipyard could just drive to work in the morning from their own home. So that's, that's an expense that stacks up very quickly. And when they say that a ship built in China is X euros or, you know, whatever, cheaper than doing it in Finland, that's only a contract price. And then there are all these expenses that are not included in that, but still have to be paid. So it's, yeah, 
it's not as simple as saying as some people are saying these days that you know China will take away all ferry ferry shipbuilding because they're cheaper. But there are so so many factors that need to be taken into account. Quality, delivery on time, all the extra expenses. But um, you know, I'm getting getting sidetracked from the actual question, which was that where the the shipyards uh, in Finland will be in in five years' time. Well, to tie what I was just saying saying just now, I would presume that the Rauma shipyard will be with us in five years' time, and it will probably be doing quite well because they, despite the fact that they're clearly more expensive than building ships in China, they've managed to secure the building the new ferries for Vasaline and for Tallink, and they almost got to build ships for Australia, and then they do have also the contract to build four corvettes for the Finnish Navy. So that's going to keep them occupied for for several years. What Rauma Marine Constructions also have as their advantage in the current situation is that they're essentially just a company that designs and coordinates and everything is bought from subcontractors, which maybe is not an ideal way to do things in, let's say, normal circumstances, but right now it's really useful to a company that they have minimal expenses. They, you know, they don't have to lay off people because they don't have that many people working at the shipyards. They're all subcontractors, and it's the subcontractors' problem. If they have too much staff, it's still, you know, it's just moving the problem to a different, different company. But it is good. For the shipbuilding company itself, then if we the question talk is, about of course, if you can, uh, if you can, if you can maintain the high quality when you're dependent on uh, on, on subcontractors in, in in to such heavy extent. But uh, mm. I guess with those those most recent deliveries, including that ferry to uh, Bornholm, uh, it's been built more or less entirely by subcontractors and and and, and just the uh, project coordinating by the yard. Uh, mm. so, uh, Precisely, but it is that is absolutely a relevant point, and my sort of argument under normal circumstances would be that it's best to do as much as possible in-house, because then you have the best quality control and control over finances, control over who actually does what they're supposed to do, and all these kinds of things. But, yes, in, then in a situation like the pandemic where Mayer Turku are, you know, have been pretty much for the duration of the year since the beginning of the pandemic, they've been in some kind of negotiations about the need to lay off people. For them, having such a big workforce in-house is a, is a problem in the current situation, whereas Rauma just doesn't have the same problem, but it's absolutely true that also that you know if the subcontractors go bust if if you're you know skilled um, builder of ship interiors like Merimine Helsinki if they go bust then you're screwed because where can you find another company with the same uh, with the same skilled workforce the same quality of output that you rely on 
So it's not it's not an easy. No, I, I can uh, just as as we speak, I can I can remember that uh, when the Masayard was was uh, reconstructed back in the early nineties, one of the um, differences they were pointing at was that they should always have uh, two at least two suppliers, so that they would not be dependent on one supplier. Mm. And if that supplier went bust, and they shouldn't be it shouldn't be crucial for, for the survivors. Mm. Mm. That's absolutely true. And this is a I mean, I'm not familiar to the with the sort of day-to-day -day workings of everything. So likely there are backups as as you say, but you know, we live in such unusual times that yeah, who knows what will happen. Um, happen with, uh, well, with the with the Mayaturku yard it has of course been interesting to see all these uh, big investments they've done. They have a new uh, additional gantry crane. They've overhauled mm. the old one with a new control system, uh, a new or at least part of a new uh, steel construction line. So I think they have at this point a very modern. You know, after all these updates, it's, it's, it's mm. one of the best best sites for, for building those ships. So let's hope that the Mayaturku site in the yard has, has a good uh, potential to survive you know, despite the pandemic. But uh, moving on to the third yard in Helsinki, mm. do, you, do, you, do you actually see, uh, if you're completely honest here, do you see a future <laughs> for that yard? Uh, it's a lot more difficult than for the other yards. Let's start by saying that I would absolutely love it for the Helsinki shipyard to thrive in the future. If only for the fact that when I go to the local best computer shop in town, I can see the ships being built from the tram window at the outfitting outfitting key. But that's a part of the problem because the Helsinki shipyard is in a location that was at the edge of the city in the late 1800s. It's now dead, you know, not exactly in the city center, but it is a part of the sort of dense urban area with the redevelopment of the harbor areas next to it. So what is usually referred to as the West Harbor or Lansisatama, Eller Vestrahamnen for uh, Henrik. Yeah, in addition to all the harbor areas being now redeveloped as housing, the over half of the Helsinki shipyard's land area is also being redeveloped into a housing area. And the shipyard can't, you know, they couldn't really afford to lose that bit of land, but because it's land that they have been renting from the city of Helsinki, they didn't have a choice. The city of Helsinki said that, yeah, well, your deal to rent this area ends in 2019. Deal with it. And the curves and the shipyard area, the the better known area of the shipyard with the big assembly hall and building dock and all those bits that now has a contract until uh, 2035 but there's no guarantee that that the contract will continue after that and then there's the question that are you going to invest in a shipyard that might not exist in 15 years because it's entirely possible that you know even if the Helsinki shipyard becomes hugely successful under the under the current current ownership, and I really hope it does, but 
even if it becomes hugely successful, it's entirely possible that in 15 years' time the city of Helsinki says that, yeah, we need more space for apartments, shipyard, get lost. <laughs> so basically you're saying that the, uh, the city of Helsinki are not standing behind, uh, you know, any of, regardless of who owns the shipyard, uh, they are not really standing behind the idea of, of, of having a shipyard in central Helsinki anymore, as might mm. be the case in, in the past. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. I am, you know, in addition to, to my interest in shipping, I'm also quite active in urban planning group, groups in Facebook, especially one that's specifically about how Helsinki should develop in the future. And, Quite a lot of central, you know, politicians who are, let's say, central to the forming of the general political opinion, quite a lot of them are fairly critical, critical about the shipyard. It's whether they're right or wrong, they don't seem to see it as something that should be kept alive in the long term. I, I hope to be proven wrong, and of course all this is dependent on whether or not the Helsinki shipyard can actually actually get get proper new orders. That's uh, I true. I would like to to uh, to hand over uh, to Mitch, and and uh, the next question will be entirely connected to ferries. So yeah, go Good. on. Moving uh, direction a little bit from shipbuilding now, we just mm. want to touch on the um, the ferries that uh, are sailing between Sweden and Finland, mm. and uh, obviously this um, concept of ferries is is quite unique, especially nowadays with the cruise mm. ferry operation. Do you think that that is something that will move more towards a row pack style, you know, where where there a lot of freight? Is being carried on the ferries, and perhaps the um, the cruise atmosphere on board is is reduced a little bit in favour of that. Or do you think that there is the demand? And again, I guess it's very much up in the air with the with the whole COVID thing. But do you think that that's a trend that might continue? Or I think it's very likely that we'll see a move towards more more freight oriented row packs even in the Finland Sweden routes there's or it's not even likely it's going to happen because the new Finland ships that they're building in China that will come enter service in 2023 and 24 I think those are going to be the kind of freight oriented row packs you see so you see elsewhere elsewhere in Europe as really you know the Cruise ferry as a sort of Finnish and uh, or and in a wider wider context northern Baltic phenomenon. It's it's survived because on one hand because tax-free sales are still a thing if you sail through the Orland Islands, whereas elsewhere within in in traffic within the European Union, tax-free is of course not a thing. And then there's the fact that uh, the Finnish state is giving financial support to shipping companies on the on the basis even before the pandemic happened, they are giving financial support to shipping companies. On the reasoning is to keep 
ships under Finnish flag so that when there are cases like the current pandemic, there's actually ships that can sort of maintain vital connections. But the, the subventions are paid based on the amount of crew employed on a ship. So operating a heavily passenger-oriented cruise ferry like the Celia Serenade or Viking Grace is going to be more profitable to the shipping company than it would if these ships were operated based on purely the commercial demands of, uh, of supply and demand. The thing is that even with ships like the Viking Grace coming into service, we haven't really seen an increase in passenger numbers on passengers actually coming from Finland and Sweden. There has been an increase in passengers coming from China because they use the ferries as a form of transport in, in tours around Europe. So, you know, you have a declining number of passengers from the local markets and an increasing number of passengers from the international markets to get the number of people from Finland and Sweden to sail on those ships, you have to offer really cheap prices. So it becomes a question of of sort of when is it is it sort of sustainable as a business, or would it be better to do as Finlines are doing? They are getting a lot less state support because their ships offer uh, their ships have smaller crews because there's less less passenger services but they're still making an excellent business and you know being able to afford to build two new ships for the Finland Sweden routes whereas you know Viking Line had almost 10 years between the Viking Viking Grace and the upcoming Viking Glory Cilia Line are using second hand ships transferred from from Tallinn yeah, so, you know, and, and the information what I have from within Tallinn Cilia line that, you know, officially no one told me this, of course, but is that, you know, the income of the Turku-Stockholm route is so small that they, they can't, you know, financially justify building new ships for their Turku route. But Finland certainly have a financial case for building new rope axes for the Nantali Kapalsha route. And then if you look at the Helsinki-Stockholm route, Viking Line CEO pretty much just openly told me when I interviewed them a, a few years back for ferry shipping news, uh, they told me that, you know, we can't build new ships for Helsinki-Stockholm. The route just doesn't make enough money to justify such an such an investment that if we can find a suitable second-hand ship we will buy it but you know if we we can't we'll just keep running with the old ones and that then you know, creates a problem that a ship like the Mariella which is almost as old as I am that's not going to keep in one piece forever and then Tallinn Cilia have pretty much the same problem with the Cilia Serenade and Cilia Symphony is that they're not new ships. The Cilia Serenade is going to be 30 years old this year and then those ships are also of such a high quality 
and sort of have such expensive onboard solutions that you can't, even if Tallink would otherwise, they could make a case for building new ships for Helsinki-Stockholm routes, they can't build ships or can't afford to build ships that are going to be as good as the Cilia Serenade and Cilia Symphony. They were, you know, those two ships were the ships that essentially bankrupted or, well, not bankrupted, but caused the financial difficulties of Cilia Line that ended up with the company being sold first to sea containers and then to Tallink because they were just simply so expensive. So it's, yeah, I would foresee a move to freight-oriented row packs on the Finland-Sweden routes eventually. And there's uh, there's always, I think, in these cases, the question of, is it going to be done in a controlled way where the shipping companies just say that, you know, the model that we have right now isn't really working. We need to do something else. Or are they just desperately going to try keeping the current model until one day they just run out of money. Yeah, or give up certain routes and, and focus mm -hmm. on other routes. That could be. Uh, I, I was, uh, you know, actually surprised to, to see that Viking line that they would uh, order uh, another cruise ferry. Uh, can't remember now. Was it three years ago? The one which is, is currently being. Uh, yeah, it was something in, like three China. years ago. It, it, I think it, you're right. it did somehow surprise me that they went. For, for such a vessel, building such a vessel again, mm. as this this whole call it ferry leisure ferry uh, leisure ferries, mm. say so amusement ferries. It, 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 I think it peaked, like you said, in the beginning of the nineties. That's when mm. those cilia vessels were delivered, uh, and uh, we haven't so far. Oh, okay, we're talking different routes now, but we haven't so far seen anything. Uh, above that level. Right? Precisely, yeah. And I, I agree, I mean, the Viking glory, as it will be called, it will have a slightly larger cargo capacity than the Viking grace, but it's still a really passenger-oriented ship when you consider it's just its size. So it's a bit, hmm... I, of course, don't have a secret phone line to Viking Line headquarters, but I, I do wonder what they were thinking about, because it would it would seem to me that the sensible solution would have been to at least sort of prepare for the eventuality that you need a larger cargo capacity. And the fact that it only has a single cargo deck and then the garage deck, but no, no two sort of double heights height cargo decks, that seems very strange to me. If, if my memory serves me well, uh, Celia Line did, under the sea containers, only ship towards the end before they were, were sold to Tallink. They did have some, some more freight-oriented couple of vessels, uh, a project which was not materialized with, with mm. uh, was it Arker Finyards at the time? Uh, Arker Finyards, so, yes, they were... Um, to the best of my knowledge, and this is second-hand information, so I can't really say if this is true, but to the best of my knowledge, there were actually two different projects. At first, they were planning 
for a pair of ships because at the time, of course, Celia had sort of Celia and its subsidiary uh, Sea Wind Line actually had four ships on the Turku-Stockholm route. So you had the cruise ferries, the Celia Europa and the Celia Festival, and then the train ropaxes, um, the Sea Wind and the uh, Sky Wind. And the idea was to build two ships that could replace both of these, which could have, would have carried, uh, they would have had a large cargo capacity for both trains and trucks, and then a somewhat smaller passenger capacity, but still, you know, high quality as you would expect from a, from a cruise ferry, but in smaller numbers than then especially on the Celia Europa with over 3,000 passengers on that one, whereas my understanding is that they would have they would have carried less than 2,000 passengers on 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 those ships, and they were once uh, those sort of combination, let's say, cruise row packs, maybe those were initially planned, but then when it turned out that sea containers couldn't really afford such expensive ships, not because they wouldn't have been profitable, but just because sea containers had one profitable bit, which was Cilia Line, and then a lot of different operations that were all pretty much making a loss. So in, I think it was either 2004 or 2005, sea containers or Cilia Line as a subsidiary of sea containers, did sign a memorandum of, of uh, agreement with Arkafinyards to build two, two, what are presumed to be two row packs without a cruise element. Uh, again, I don't know the details. I couldn't find these in the, in the archives when I was visiting the shipyards. I did look, uh, but you know, the contract price for two ships was so, so low that they couldn't have been cruise rope axes. They would have had to be, you know, your regular cargo-oriented rope axes. But yeah, there was a memorandum of agreement to build two of those, but then Celia allowed that to lapse, and yeah, they were never ordered. But it's, it is an interesting question if, if Celia had ordered either to cruise row packs or to regular row packs in the mid mid 2000s, so you know something like 15 years ago, their Turku Stockholm route today could look very different because they would have been the first to to make the brave but I think necessary move to row packs operations. And that yeah. That could have changed many things if that had happened. Galay, thank you very much for uh, for being our first uh, interviewee on the uh, on the podcast, and uh, we've enjoyed all the information that you've given us, and hopefully uh, the listeners find it all interesting. And um, yeah, come back again in the future. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. It, it's been a pleasure pleasure to be here, and I'm I'm honoured to be. To have been chosen as your sort of first people, to, first person to uh, interview, and yeah, I I've enjoyed this. I hope the listeners are have enjoyed this too. And yeah, if you'll have me again, I will gladly be interviewed again. <laughs>